Welcome to Rheumatainment, a live podcast with Dr. George Munoz from the Oasis Institute, a fully integrated clinic and AOTRC, AARA, a state-of-the-art rheumatology care center in Miami, Aventura, Florida, part of the best and largest rheumatology supergroup in the U.S. Rheumatainment will broach many hot topics in medicine, the field of integrative rheumatology and medicine, as well as socio-political and discovery events in all fields of pertinent science. Dr. Munoz will dissect, deconstruct, and envision potential utility of approaches and or treatments for inflammatory autoimmune conditions and emphasize the intersection of current cutting-edge drug discovery with best-in-class, whole-person approaches in care focusing on critical domains such as exercise, sleep, stress management, nutrition, and sound nutraceutical interventions. Finally, topics and realms not commonly discussed will be the dessert of our discussions as we bring you the best of the best in integrated room attainment. And since it's about 90% COVID-19 right now, we will reflect this emphasis on our podcast accordingly, but not exclusively to the pandemic. So today, Dr. Munoz will discuss a few questions and topics related to vaccines, their rollout, efficacy, and global situational fluidity regarding these vaccine therapeutics. Welcome, Dr. Munoz. Bill, so good to be here. I appreciate your time and interviewing, asking, discussing, and really delineating these new topics that are so important right now in the world and in medicine. And you are so correct about that. These topics are hot right now. People need to know the answers. So we are so thrilled to talk to you today about these. So let's jump right in, Dr. Munoz, and let's talk about some of this stuff. So first off, can you give us a quick summary once again to recap for our audience, our current vaccine choices, their differences, effectiveness, and which new ones are on deck? I'm happy to do that, Bill. And I just want to put that summary of the differences of the vaccine in the spectrum of just where we are right now in the U.S. with COVID-19. And then I'll jump right into the vaccines themselves. So as of yesterday, we are at over 27 million cases of COVID. We unfortunately have had over 464,000 deaths and over 80,000 hospitalized individuals. Yesterday, we were at approximately 1,500 deaths just for the day and 92,000 cases of new cases of COVID. But the good news is we're trending down, Bill. We are trending down. Our case percentage is down at 36%. Our deaths are down 12% and the hospitalized patients, which can really surge and overwhelm our system is down 26%. So with that background, we have to understand that the vaccines are critical. And, you know, I'm going to talk about the differences of the two major ones that we have right now, which is the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, the two mRNA vaccines. Handling them and the logistics dictated by these particular vaccines are different. The Pfizer vaccine is a vaccine that requires a tremendous amount of freezing. The logistics involved to keep the vaccine at minus 70 degrees may not be able to be done just everywhere. So community centers and doctor's offices, they can't really do that very easily. So big centers or big vaccine logistic distribution points have been picked out nationally and certainly here in South Florida to handle the Pfizer vaccine, which is an mRNA protein, ribonucleic acid, genetic material that is in a micelle of fat that is injected into the person's arm and it requires two shots, three weeks apart. The Moderna vaccine, on the other hand, is not as difficult in terms of temperature requirements. It also is an mRNA vaccine. It has an adjuvant, which means it stimulates the immune system along with the envelope that it's been put into. And it is an mRNA or code 
like coding in computers and software, it's coding for the genetic material when it enters the cells that travels to the nucleus in the center of the cell that tells the cell what to do, what to make. And what is it making? It's making the spike protein of the virus, the virion, COVID-19, the SARS-CoV-19 virion that is responsible for this current pandemic that in spite of what the World Health Organization said yesterday, denying that it originated in Wuhan, well, that's where it originated. So the virion protein, which is the spike protein, is how this virus attaches to the cells through the receptors in the body. So we are making, through the mRNA message and ribonuclein, ribonuclear protein, a sequence of sugars that the body uses as a software to map out the protein construction that will then make these inactive spike proteins and that is what triggers the immune response so that people can defend themselves through different parts of the immune system if they encounter the actual virus itself. So that is really the basis of what we have. The other vaccines that are not yet here in the U.S. are the J&J &J vaccine and the AstraZeneca or Oxford vaccine, which is in Great Britain. So they use a what's called an adenovirus vector. They take a common cold virus. They put the genetic material into the very benign, not deadly, common cold virus, and they're using DNA there instead of RNA. So it's the same kind of concept, but instead of using mRNA, they're using DNA. And it's coding for the mRNA spike protein, and the same process occurs with the AstraZeneca vaccine as does with the mRNA Pfizer and Moderna, which are the only two we have right now. So the J&J &J virus is more of a killed virus. Is it similar to the flu shot then? Yes. So we're not using any live viruses. We are using a genetic material that specifically codes only for the spike protein at this time. So people shouldn't be fearful that they're getting a live virus. They're not. People shouldn't fear that the genetic material to the spike protein can just replicate or build up in the body on its own. It can't. It's simply causing the immune system to see a foreign protein and react to it. So all of them have that in common. But what they do have variability in is how well they are working. So right now, it looks like, from our initial data, and from the over 40,000 patients that were tested, for example, with Pfizer and Moderna, that we're talking at extraordinary amounts of response and effectiveness that is in the 95% range. But the other vaccines at this time don't show that. For example, J&J &J is somewhere around 66%. AstraZeneca is roughly around 82%, and another vaccine that is in lurking in phase two and three trials, Novavax, is somewhere around 89%. Both the J&J &J and Novavax are still pending FDA emergency authorization use. The other thing about J&J &J that's interesting because we're having this problem with logistics, people coming for a second shot, not having the second shot, the special refrigeration that we mentioned is that J&J &J is a single shot. So when it's approved, and you know I, I believe it will be approved, the logistics are going to be much simpler. It doesn't require that minus 70 degrees Celsius special refrigeration that Pfizer vaccine requires. And this has implication for pushing towards a critical mass of what we want in terms of what's called herd immunity. Since we're racing against this virus becoming more and more virulent and mutating and variations occurring that are already happening, such as the South African, the UK, and the Brazilian ones.
Yeah, that's really good news. And with all of those, then I counted five potential vaccines once all of them are approved. So let's talk more about the mRNA vaccine, exactly what it does. And what does mRNA stand for? Does the RNA stand for ribonuclear protein? As you mentioned ribonuclear protein, I'm wondering if that's the R and the N and the mRNA vaccine. Yes, let's get the lingo down, as they would say, for our audience and for our pseudoscientists. So M stands for messenger, it's the message. RNA stands for ribonucleic protein acid. And what it is, is a group of sugars with phosphorus that are linked together that actually, like computer code, dictate a software of action for the cell in terms of forming proteins and other functions that are encoded within the mechanism of the actual cell structure. So the mRNA goes to the center of the cell, the nucleus. There it dictates the action, in this case of forming the spike protein. It does this without affecting our DNA. It does not affect our DNA. And in terms of safety and side effects, what we have found is that the overall risk-benefit of the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines are extremely well-tolerated. There are, in general, very few major side effects. There is the typical flu-like symptoms that can happen. For example, muscle aches, tiredness, fever, soreness at the site of the shot. Some people may have some gastrointestinal symptoms, nausea or diarrhea, but that's pretty uncommon. And most of these symptoms are mild to moderate. They really don't, in general, put people down for days and days. We're talking about something that may last one to three days in general. Right. And the arm soreness and things like that, that's actually a good sign. That means that it's working, correct? Yes, because what's happening is the body is seeing the foreign protein. It's reacting automatically by your what's called innate immune system. We have two arms to the immune system, innate and adaptive. The innate immune system is what immediately sees and detects something is wrong, dangerous, or that shouldn't be in the body. And we have several triggers in our tissues, in the skin, under the skin, in our lungs, in our GI tract, all around us, protecting us from invaders outside our body. So these can cause inflammation, pain, swelling, and tenderness. So those are actually the signs of inflammation, and we were taught that in medical school. They're called rubor, which means redness, dolor, which means pain, and these are all hallmarks of inflammation. So it's a good sign when we have the inflammatory response after a vaccine. It means the immune system has been awoken. It's doing what it's meant to do. Okay, so that is good news. So let's talk a little bit more about this mRNA vaccine. So I have heard, and to be brutally honest, I have a family member that has said she's not going to take the vaccine because she's afraid it's going to affect her DNA. It's going to change her DNA. I don't even know what that means. I don't even know how a vaccine could change DNA. Can you debunk that for us. I don't even know what it means to change your DNA. What does that even mean? But can you tell us that the mRNA vaccines, which are the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines, are not going to change your DNA, correct? They are not going to change your DNA. mRNA goes to the ribosomes, little factories in the cell that make protein. There it's red, there it's coded. DNA come, is in the center of the cell. So the mRNA vaccines go into the cell, the cytoplasm, which is not the center of the cell, not the control center where we have DNA. The mRNA does not interact with DNA. That's number one. So physically it's separated. Number two, 
mRNA doesn't last too long. And once it's in the cell, it goes right to the little factories, okay? We've got ribosomes that read those sugars. They have readers, scanners, molecular scanners, and they, based on that, begin to take amino acids together according to the order and the dictation of the order of the mRNA, the message, and start creating the protein, which is in this case the spike protein to the SARS-CoV-19 surface, which is what attaches in the body. So that process of the mRNA being injected into our muscle taken up by cells, that mRNA does not mess with anyone's DNA because it doesn't go into the center of the cell. It stays in the cytoplasm. The other possibilities of vaccines that use DNA that would go into the nucleus still will not affect our DNA because the molecular binding is not such that foreign DNA actually gets into our DNA. And so the two vaccines we're talking about have nothing to do with DNA. They don't mess with our DNA and they don't last too long. So it's a timing thing that the cells start using the mRNA to create the spike protein. And that is what causes the immune reaction that we want to see. And the J&J vaccine and the Novavax vaccine, those also do not interact with our DNA. Is that correct? Correct. Okay, so that's good news. So basically, we have nothing to worry about. But what about safety and side effects? Can you touch on that for us as well? Once again, I want to emphasize that these vaccines have been tested on tens of thousands of people, that dosing and safety have happened in terms of testing simultaneously. So that's what we call phase two and phase three were done at the same time to accelerate the development of the vaccines. When we look at the most common side effects of the vaccines, they basically they look like a mild common flu for the most part. And this is for the vast majority of people. For example, in the original testing of the Moderna virus, where there were 20,000 people getting the drug, the vaccine I call the drug, and 20,000 people getting uh, placebo, not getting the vaccine, there was one death in each group. So one person died in, in the group, the 20,000 group that got the vaccine, and one person died in the 20,000 group that never got the vaccine. Why is that? Well, because people die. That has nothing to do with the intervention. When you have that many people, we will pick up a statistical death. It's unfortunate, but it's true. But the most common side effects are the ones that we've mentioned already, which are soreness at the site of injection, muscle aches, low-grade fever, tiredness, headache. Those are the most common symptoms. So basically at the time of this recording, over 30 million Americans have been vaccinated and we haven't heard of any deaths or horror stories. There was a couple at the beginning, people that had a kind of an allergic reaction, but so far we haven't heard anything. So let me clarify that. Yes, we've had rare anaphylaxis reactions. I mean, we're talking on the order of less than a half a percent amongst the vast number of people that have received the vaccine. There are internet reports of unusual side effects. I've seen a couple of these tapes, and honestly, a couple of them just didn't look authentic to me, but this is for the FDA to decide. There has been an unfortunate death here in Miami of a physician, and the assessment of what the exact cause of death post-vaccination is being looked at in that situation. There was pending information, pending autopsy information, and scientific data looking at that fully. 
that we're still pending that analysis. It's a tragedy. There are children and, and a wife and family that have been left without a husband, father. But right now, this seems to be an, so far an isolated event. In this case, the platelet count went extremely low. And from what I've read, this happened very quickly after the vaccine. We're talking approximately three days and then became resistant to therapy over the next few weeks and unfortunately ended up in a cerebral hemorrhage because the platelets were so profoundly low. So excluding this very tragic and unfortunate case, we don't see this as a repeat signal worldwide at this point. So aside from you know, our prayers and thoughts with the family, we can't at this time have a definitive ultimate conclusion that this is going to be an ongoing scenario because we're not seeing it. And again, the FDA is thoroughly investigating this particular case, and so more will be revealed. Okay. So then can you briefly explain the risk and benefit analysis or approach with your patients and counseling in regards to the COVID-19 vaccine? Sure. My patients are going to be high-risk patients. They're going to be autoimmune patients, many of whom could be on steroids, prednisone, for treatment. They may have other comorbidities that are commonly discussed and that people have heard about and that you read about and hear about that put them at higher risk for complications, such as being obese or significantly overweight in terms of their body mass index. They may have hypertension or cardiovascular disease, again, as increasing their potential risk. The age group looks like it's 65 and over, but it starts going up at 60. So if you have someone in their late 60s with high blood pressure, high BMI, on steroids, They've got three or four risk factors. And while the risk actually of getting COVID is relatively low, if they get it, their risk of complications is tripled or quadrupled. So there's an explanation of how we want to talk about how to put this into perspective for our patients. A young patient teenager, 20, 30s, in general, is not going to have any problems at all with the virus. Sometimes they won't even know they've had it, but they could carry it and pass it on to someone else who is at a higher risk for any of the multitude of reasons that I've just mentioned. So you said you do work with high-risk patients, so let's go over a few of these then. What about autoimmune patients, RA, psoriatic arthritis, psoriasis, or SLE, or lupus patients who you were just talking about. Vaccine then, yes or no, and what do we need to know about safety? So this was one of the great concerns and questions and really daily question in the office and on the phone and by messaging and email, whatever other possible form of communication is that patients are concerned about the possibility of the vaccine causing or creating possible flare, for example, of their autoimmune disease. These are common concerns. And then the safety of the vaccine, again, for the normal questions that we've already covered, which is, is it going to mess up my DNA? Am I going to get COVID, et cetera, et cetera. So short, brief, general answer is that as someone who has grown up in medicine over the past 37 years, seeing hundreds of thousands of patients over my career, I've not been a big, big pro-vaccinator as a rheumatologist in general until now. And I am recommending with shared informed decision making, just like we've discussed, benefits and risks that pretty much all our patients who 
have autoimmune disease and who fit into the categories of higher risk, go ahead and be vaccinated with some caveats as to what to do and when to do it in terms of their special autoimmune and immunosuppressive medications. Well, that's a pretty strong statement if you are recommending it for all of those groups. So then let me ask you this then. What about their meds such as steroids, DMARDs, biologics? What do we need to know about that? So I think one of the main things we need to know about their meds, our podcast today is very timely because we're just getting some guidance, for example, from the medical societies, specifically in my case as a rheumatologist, the American College of Rheumatology, which has not had any specific detailed commentary until today on timing of medications with respect to COVID vaccination. Now, as far as steroids go, anyone who's on 10 milligrams or more is at higher risk to get COVID. And they're also at higher risk to get any infection. So it's not just COVID, it's any infection. So being on steroids for any reason, 10 milligrams or more puts you at higher risk. If we do thumbs up, sideways, you know, no definite strong feeling or down, no, don't get it. I've already said that we feel and I feel that the vaccine should be employed in these patients. Now, for the DMARTs, which stands for, it's an ugly word, DMARTs. I mean, what does that mean exactly? The Z, it's like a crazy thing, okay? In medicine, we have crazy words. DMARTs stands for disease-modifying anti-rheumatic drugs. What the hell does that mean? It's like we speak in a secret language or something. So part of the podcast purpose is to demystify our secret code so that we can all talk freely and discuss and patients and physicians have a clearer understanding and just the lay public of what's going on here. So these stand for all the medications that are immune suppressive drugs. That means they tone down or downgrade the normal immune response to a degree so that the overactive immune system, which is a common theme in conditions such as rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, psoriatic arthritis, inflammatory bowel disease, all these autoimmune conditions have an abnormally active immune system attacking the body instead of attacking a foreign bacteria or virus. That's why they're called autoimmune diseases or disorders. Some of these medicines, like for, let's take methotrexate, for example. We just heard from the American College of Rheumatology that they recommend that that medicine should be held for one week after the, each vaccine dose for people who have well-controlled disease and there's no need to modify the vaccination timing. So that's very helpful that we got a very specific answer. So for that DMARD of methotrexate, which is used in rheumatoid arthritis, it's used in psoriasis, it's used in psoriatic arthritis, it's used commonly, and it's in both adults and children and adolescents with autoimmune disease. We now know that we should not give methotrexate for one week after each vaccine dose. So the two vaccines that we have have multiple doses, the Pfizer vaccine is at three weeks. The Moderna is at four weeks. So if you get the vaccine the following week, don't take methotrexate. These are things that we would tell our patients that the physician would indicate and discuss with the patient, each patient, each individual. There are others, and we're not going to go through each one, but the website is rheumatology.org. And it's Guidance for Rheumatic Disease Summary, COVID-19, Clinical Guidance Rheumatic Disease Summary. And we'll put a link up on our website and we'll send it to you, Bill, so you can also have it. But that was an example of what people can look forward to. Biologics, those are other advanced autoimmune therapies for these conditions. And they, like DMARDs, are medications that have molecules 
that are in the immune system. So they're called biologics because they actually are in our biology. And they can turn on or turn down inflammation. So we have specific guidance now on a number of biologics, and there are many. One is aptabacet, or otherwise known as orensia. And again, this is used, for example, in the treatment of rheumatoid arthritis for intravenous orensia or aptabacet. You want to time the vaccine administration so the first vaccination will occur four weeks after the infusion of the medication. And we may have to postpone the next in subsequent infusion by one week. So there could be a five-week gap instead of a four-week gap. No medication adjustment needs to be done, however, for the second vaccine dose. So it's only for the first vaccine dose. So I give these two very specific examples to show how complex this whole thing is, number one. Number two, folks, patients, talk to your doctor, talk to your rheumatologist, because each person is individualized. Physicians, not in this field, please coordinate your care with your rheumatologist or the advanced practitioner who's treating these inflammatory mediated disorders. And we are here to help clarify these questions and more, because this is a rapidly fluid and evolving field. That is so true. So I think another question people are asking is, how effective are these vaccines? Great question, because when we start wondering what it takes to even be an FDA-approved vaccine, I was stupefied, actually. You know, the goalpost is like 51%. If you're 51% effective, in theory, you're good to go. However, these vaccines, thank goodness, are way over that. The Pfizer vaccine is reportedly around 95% effective against the COVID-19 virus. Moderna is at 94.1%. So to me, that's the same, 94 to 95%. Johnson & Johnson, which is a single shot, as we've mentioned, without all those thermal requirements, is less effective, 66 to 68%. However, it seems to have effectiveness against this new South African variant that the AstraZeneca did not show for low to moderate disease. That's hot off the press, Bill. Only on this podcast are you going to get this state-of-the-art, breaking rheumatology news, breaking COVID news over your head. Here we go. That is really important. And as you said earlier, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine doesn't have to be super chilled. It can be more easily transported and we can get that into rural areas. And it's only one shot. So this is all good news. Yes, the logistics being easier is a big deal because we're hearing in the news so many problems with logistics. That's for sure. And it's nice to know that well, I know Johnson & Johnson right now is in final FDA approval, but we're all expecting that to happen. So once we get these three rolling in a couple of months, I think some really positive things are really going to start to happen. So Dr. Munoz, you mentioned the variants. Can you talk about the variants? Because just when you think, okay, the light is at the end of the tunnel, it's like, oh no, what's this variant stuff? Can you talk to us about that? Sure. You know, variants or mutations or drug-resistant types, they're all synonyms. We're talking about the same thing. First of all, viruses always are changing, always mutating. This is what viruses do. So this is not new. This is actually is part of the problem with our common flu vaccine, which year after year, since I'm in medical school, I'm hearing about the pandemic of 1918 and the swine flu virus, H1N1, and the variants. And aside from just a few time periods since 1918, have we had major outbreaks of swine flu. These variations, these mutations, is part of the normal biology of bacteria and of viruses. Now, specifically COVID-19 and the recent variants 
that we're seeing right now, which are just for right now, because in three to six months, I can guarantee you we're going to have other variants, other mutations. And so how does this happen? It can happen by pressure, quote unquote pressure. What do I mean by that? I mean by selective pressure of evolution and of the environment for the virus to continue to replicate and to gain foothold and an advantage and be able to replicate because what the virus wants to do is just grow and replicate and spread that's what they're trying to do and if there's something that allows a variant a type of the bacteria to change to make it spread faster than its competitor that's what we call the evolutionary pressure or advantage that's gained so right now we're talking about three variants that that are being monitored that doesn't mean these are the only ones. These are the ones that are being talked about the most. The South African, the UK, and the Brazilian variant. What we see is, is that these variants can double in prevalence in just a, you know 10 to 14 days once they gain hold in a population. The mutations or changes in these variants can either be few or many, and they can be simultaneously numerous. But not all changes or mutations means that the vaccines don't work. But there may be differences in carrier states of people being able to carry the virus, transmissibility, and the ability to create mild, moderate, or severe disease, depending on the immune system. But recently, what's worrisome is that the effectiveness in the South African variant was noted in the use of the AstraZeneca vaccine because the clinical trial that just ran, that's not yet peer-reviewed, I have to tell you, and that it involved a company trial of about only 2,000 people, which is small in comparison to the 20 to 40,000 individual trials that I told you about previously for Moderna and Pfizer, when they ran their large trials, they found that the AstraZeneca vaccine was only about 10% effective against the South African variant, which was not that much different, if at all, than placebo. So that was worrisome. They didn't test it against severe disease because this was a young population, relatively young volunteers, who were unlikely to become ill, so their endpoint was prevent mild or moderate disease, and they didn't see a big difference between placebo and this new variant, which is called the B1351 variant. So the numbers don't matter. It's just that we have to be concerned about that variant, for example, and what it will do biologically if it spreads to the U.S., which is a matter of time, honestly. And that's why it's a race to get our population vaccinated now as quickly as possible to create herd immunity for what we now have available. It looks like the J&J &J vaccine, however, does have activity against this variant. The good news here will be that that will be a one-shot deal. It will have activity against this variant. We are ramping up and approximately vaccinating 1.2 to 1.5 million people a day at present. So there is some good news around the corner. Absolutely. So, Dr. Munoz, have you obtained the vaccine? Bill, that will require a HIPAA release. <laughs> I don't just give this information nilly-willy. But because you're a buddy and we're on this podcast, I am going to share the information and I am going to lead by example. Yes, I have been vaccinated. Nice. I am a healthcare worker on the front line. And I statistically, only statistically, am at a higher risk because, believe it or not, I am 66. In spite of my athletic prowess, I looked at that number and I said, self, you should do the right thing and lead your patients and show what is the right thing to do for them as a healthcare worker, as their physician. I'm in contact with autoimmune and immunocompromised patients and I do not 
want to get any of them sick. I don't want to be sick and I don't want to give it to anyone. So part of getting the vaccination is to attenuate, which means to reduce the severity of COVID if you were to get it. And number two, it will reduce your carrier state significantly according to the data that we have thus far. So that inspired me, motivated me more as well to want to protect others in terms of getting vaccinated. Well, thank you for sharing that information with us. And yes, your athletic prowess and youthful sound, we would have never known you're in that upper group, if you will. So thank you for sharing that information with us. Your experience is valuable. You're welcome, Bill. (laughs) That could be a separate podcast in the future. The Fountain of Youth with Dr. Munoz. I like it. Uh, That could be, we got something there. We got something, Bill. So then what has your experience been with your autoimmune patients, your friends, colleagues, or family? Tell us that. So my experience so far with my autoimmune patients and and our busy infusion practice, with all the people who have the diagnoses and more that we've discussed, rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, psoriasis, psoriatic arthritis, inflammatory bowel disease, uveitis, and just a myriad of autoimmune diseases and beyond, the experience has been generally very positive. I have not seen any lethal or severe reactions in my autoimmune patients. I've seen from like nothing to minor local discomfort in the arm at the site of the injection, malaise, tiredness, muscle aches, headache, low-grade fever. Nothing has put anybody down for days and days. That's never happened. There's been no flare of their autoimmune disease from either the Pfizer or the Moderna vaccine. As far as my personal colleagues, one colleague actually caught COVID after the second vaccine dose, but it wasn't the full 14 days after the dose that is required to get the full 95% effectiveness. Now remember, the vaccines attenuate or lower the severity, but they don't guarantee that you won't get COVID. Now he is a physician who is my age or older, a little older, who's got several comorbidities. And what he had was the equivalent of a mild cough and cold that lasted 48 to 72 hours, and that was it. So he did not get sick. He is convinced he would have gotten sicker without the vaccine. I've seen the same with friends. As far as family, my significant other did have a fairly strong reaction to the Moderna vaccine. And she had fever, local swelling of the arm. We've treated her with anti-inflammatories, and she is recovering. But again, this tells us her immune system is really alert, is primed for the virus, and recognized the booster three weeks later, she is protected. So those have been my experiences. I haven't seen anybody with severe side effects. Well, that's really important to know. So again, thank you for sharing that information with us because this really does help to inform all of us on the actual realities of these vaccines and what to expect. So this is really important information. So then what do you tell your patients to do now during the pandemic with their personal health habits so we can achieve your level of athletic prowess and youthful condition? That is definitely something to ponder. I'm pondering that one. But Bill, seriously, in talking to my patients and friends and colleagues, I tell them that there are four main domains that we all have to pay attention to. And that's what do we do mentally to reduce stress? How do we eat? What are good options? The area of exercise, how much? And looking at our sleep, which is immunologically very important, as well as a time period, not just for rejuvenation, but it's a potentially a time period. If it's not healthy sleep, deep sleep, 
where inflammation could increase. And inflammation is certainly one of the enemies of the body, of health, and of the immune system. So we want to look at those domains. We want to be able to reduce stress with good mind-body interventions like meditation, yoga, tai chi. We want to eat healthy, meaning anti-inflammatory or paleo nutritional patterns, not diets, nutritional patterns that have adequate fiber, micronutrients, that have the right type of healthy fats and not excessive animal protein, as well as having elimination of the wrong types of sugars and trans fats. You know, unfortunately, our society is flooded with excess sugar, high fructose corn syrup, processed foods, processed bread and wheat. So we want to get back to healthy eating. We want to get back to nutritional eating, avoiding fast food. We want to be more aware and planning our food and our nutritional patterns that are in alignment to reduce inflammation, not increase it. And then as far as exercise, I mean, we want to do moderate amounts. We don't want to be crazy. We don't want to be excessive or compulsive. But moderation is the key to all these things. 120 to 150 minutes a week of moderate intensity is a goal, a sweet spot for the immune system that creates the right type of immune cells that are primed, that cause the exercise causes circulation of these immune cells throughout the body so that they are on a journey to protect us in our body. And this is all part of having a healthy, not just physical state, but it helps with sleep and with stress. And finally, making sure that sleep is restful, deep, restorative. If someone snores and has obstruction, this could lead to apnea. It could lead to metabolic consequences. So we want to pay attention to this and we want to understand if somebody is fatigued, why are they fatigued? Why are they tired? Are they sleeping in the middle of the day? Are they falling asleep? That could be a sign of apnea or sleep obstruction that needs to be addressed. And these things can be addressed, but first you have to diagnose it, monitor it, change it. And these are the main domains and interventions that are very important right now during the pandemic to help reduce the risk and have a healthier immune system, mind-body state, and reduce inflammation in general. That is a great list, and I hope everybody took notes on that. One, you have to pay attention to your mental health, try to reduce stress. Also, pay attention to your diet and what we eat. Pay attention to anti-inflammatory foods. You mentioned paleo. Pay attention to fiber and stay away from the prepackaged foods and the high fructose corn syrupy type of stuff. Exercise. Moderation, you said, is the key, 120 to 150 minutes of moderate intensity a week. And then pay attention to sleep, which too many of us don't do, and make sure you aim for restful, deep, and restorative sleep. So if you do those four things that Dr. Munoz was just talking about, you will live a healthier life, that is for sure. And then as we wrap up, Dr. Munoz, and this has really been fantastic, what else should we consider? What else do we need to know? So I think, Bill, once we have those four domains working for us, we understand them, we've integrated them into our life, people have asked me, so now what? There's always something else that we can look at, that we can think about. And some of these come from what I call world wisdoms. They come from studying other cultures, studying medical anthropology, and looking at, through first source studies of indigenous people, such as the Inca, the Caro, which are the descendants of the Incas in the Andean tradition. But this would be true of any indigenous people. They have a whole wisdom-based approach to mind-body health. And they look at different things such as energetics. And we have energetics too. 
except it's not emphasized, for example, in conventional medicine. But we have it in our society. We have healing touch in the medical model, which is a nursing model. And this is accepted now in conventional medicine, in hospitals, teaching centers, pre-op and post-op, for example, for cardiac units. And the science of energy medicine, we have Reiki, which is the lay equivalent outside the medical model. We have things such as the ability to see, not using our eyes or the optic chiasm of the brain, but using the energetics of chakras, which are energetic vortexes or vortices that have been looked at in yoga and in other energetics. And I think one of the big areas to look at is really just the way we use language. When individuals refer to themselves specifically as, for example, let's go into the field of addiction for a moment. When people identify themselves as a chronic relapser, that is they are themselves defining their present and future. Learning to use neurolinguistic programming and awareness of language towards oneself and others, I have found an extremely valuable tool in medicine, in health, and in disease to work on And I try to echo this to my patients in my practice in terms of rheumatology, but I feel and believe that it is ubiquitous and applicable to all areas of health and wellness and medicine. If I had to be a little more simplistic, I would also say that redefining our speech is a way to reinform our own energetics into a more positive and healthy formatted and informative way so that we move out of the dis-ease to a healthier state of being. Wow, really important point and one to ponder. Well, thank you for those thoughts. It's interesting to hear you mention those things. And I think if we all put those things to practice in our own life, we will live a healthier life. And Make the world a better place. That's really important. So, Dr. Munoz, this has really been wide-ranging and informative as we really spend a lot of time on the pandemic and vaccines during this episode. So, thank you so much for your time. As always, we appreciate it. Thank you again. Bill, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for the insightful questions and, of course, for understanding the topic in depth and really communicating key points to our audience. Thank you. And thank you again. And this is the Oasis Rheumatology Podcast featuring Dr. George Munoz. For more information, you can call 305-682-8471 or visit theoasisinstitute.com. Thanks for listening.